This is Tim Haig Reads Books, presented by Tim Haig. Humira Shaheed was once called the most unmanageable woman in Pakistan. It was not intended to be a compliment. A firebrand and a tireless campaigner for women's rights, she became one of the most well-known political activists in her home country, and she has now written a memoir which is both political and personal. Tim is never happier than when he is in the company of unmanageable women, so he went to meet Humira at her London publisher's offices. This is Tim Haig Reads Books, and today's book is Devotion and Defiance by Humira Shahid. Um, Humira is, uh, I think I'm right in saying, an activist. I, I was going to actually ask you first thing, how do you see yourself? Because you've been an academic, you're an English teacher, you've been a journalist, you've been a politician, you've you've, you've membership of the uh, Assembly. Um, Tell me, what are you? How should we think of Humaira Shahid? I am an activist by every definition, and that's how I see myself. I happen to end up in positions, both in journalism, in politics, in academia, but I have what has really concerned me always is what is the rights of other people, our freedom, and then to speak up and stand up for that. So I will call myself activist. And, of course, uh, the uh, the... The area in which you're activist is, is uh, Pakistani, uh, mostly women's rights. In your book, Devotion and Defiance, you've got uh, you, you, three three really big areas of interest that, that you've that you've campaigned for, and I'd like you, if you would, to tell me what are they. Well, I um, what I primarily have been focusing on are women issues and issues that concern minors. I. I have a deep concerns about poor people, the downtrodden, the underprivileged, and uh, women happen to be a majority in that. Um, I've been working on um, acid attacks, Wani, honor killings, um, human wani. rights. T- tell me about that. Wani, wani is, a, is a Punjabi customary practice where women are bartered um, in compensation for the crimes committed by their brothers and their other ma- male family members. So women are settled, are given into marriages, forced marriages at times, uh, uh, as a compensation for minor crimes committed by the families. You tell a particular story. Uh, one, of, one of the virtues of your book is that you, you always tell a particular story to illustrate this. And there's a story of a, a lady called Soraya. Can you tell us about her? Well, uh, the reason that I wanted these stories to be very graphic and very detailed in my book is that I want to make people see that, that these are real people in the real world with real problems. This is not an abstract reality somewhere uh, in some other time. This is the world that we live in. Soraya is one of the characters, and I think there are many more. And I, I mean, these are just few stories out of hundreds that I dealt with. And Soraya is a very sad story of how... Um, people are entangled with these predatory moneylenders and the whole black market of kidney and the mafia that steals the organs. Uh, they, they, they trap these people and then what they want from them is organs and how the local hospitals were part of it. There was a certain set of doctors and physicians who were part of that and then the whole moneylending mafia. Um, and the reason that I particularly then uh, focused on this interest-based predatory lending, it became such an important issue for me, was I was approached by so many women. They wrote me letters, they made me phone calls, 
And they said, we are in brothels. We are, we, we, we are into this business of prostitution because we ended up with two or three money lenders. And now we sell our bodies. We go through this hell. We, are, we live in this living hell in order just to pay the compound interest. So I, I, I could not believe that a country that claimed to be Islamic and wants and takes pride in Islamic identity could let some, something that horrific happening I mean, Islam is categorical about usury, and and this particular site uh, type of uh, predatory money lending, and by every definition, is forbidden. And women selling their bodies and honor in the name of compound interest—what could be more disgraceful than this? And unfortunately, when I peeped more into the issue, I realized there was a redundant law of 1960 ordinance that protected these money lenders, and there was nothing for the victims. And then the more I probed into the matter, I realized that a lot of uh, acti criminal activity in Punjab had its root in the money lending mafia because this money lending mafia was a source of uh, raising money, which then was um, you know, poured into gambling, into prostitution, into brothels and uh, weapons and drugs. So I was honestly not dealing with people who had an ideological difference with me. I was dealing with people who were part of the criminal mafia. And these things obviously are against the law. I mean, you 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 use the phrase uh, "selling your body," which which is what the ladies are doing in in a brothel. This lady, Soraya, uh, sold a part of her body. She had to part sell a kidney. Yes, and and and, uh, and there were many more stories. There were there were there were there were women who were taken into forced marriages. There were there were boys who were got killed because of that. There were um, uh, families who lost their lands and crops, and uh, they lost their uh, homes. There were um, thrown out of their cities and um, uh, women were taken into subjugation because of this. I mean, those money lenders had, I mean, Shylock is nothing. Come and see what I saw. And this is what I try to, uh, you know, my, my, my book is an outcry. I couldn't hold on into this. And I wanted to tell the world, this is my way of showing the mirror to the 21st century modern man that what are we talking about? What kind of freedom and what kind of um, you know, success and what kind of progression we are talking about? This is what is happening around well, us. You were in the uh, the provincial assembly, the Punjabi, which is, uh, and the Punjab is by a long way mm. the biggest of the provinces, mm. isn't it, in, in yeah. Pakistan? And yet you, you encountered an enormous resistance to tackling these questions of violence against women, not not just Wani, uh, and but but the the acid attacks, that, the, which is one of your big themes, and and um, and so on. Uh, why why is there such resistance? Well, uh, initially I thought that it would be impossible for me to get the support of my colleagues in the parliament, but I realized that the issues were not an issue. Acid attack was not an issue. It was the cases of acid attacks where I happened to realize that. The accused was mostly, um, uh, you know, was backed up or at, at times protected by other polit political group. You see, the whole backing of these violent people, these criminals, and uh, and this is this is this is something that you know one needs to look into is the whole. Uh, engagement of the local criminal mafias and the local politicians, how they go hand in hand. They didn't have an issue with acid attacks as an, you know, ideological topic or, or something that I was looking They had a problem with special cases. Like there was a, there was a rape of a nine-year-old girl and, you know, she was bleeding when she came to the hospital and it was a very sad case. And the moment I found out, I, uh, there were three or four culprits, it was a gang rape and 
when we try to locate where they were from and where they were hiding, we realized that the local MP of that area was protecting them. So in the end, it became... It was protecting the perpetrators. Yeah, the, the because criminals. you see, he, those criminal mafias had, uh, they were very influential in these areas and could bring votes and support for them politically. And they don't want in their areas a kind of a ruffled relationship with them. You see? So what happened was, I, in the end, it was me and that MP fighting. And I said, look at the atrocity that has happened to this girl. And he said, no, I don't want to go against those criminals. And if you're going to come against me, then I'm going to come against you. So it is much more intricate and it's much more complex than just people supporting or not supporting uh, women's rights. It's, it's, it's the kind of influence that they want. They do not want to displease the local tribes. They do not want to question their values. They do not want to be unpopular. And... Um, and um, and they did end up supporting me, majority of them. And the reason was, they said, you know, we are not the initiators. We can always say, she's the one who's doing, we just voted. So you see, nobody wants to be the champion or they don't want to be on the forefront. They don't want to be tagged as somebody who are pro-women because going to these conservative areas, it is better for them to be, to be seen as one of them. Or at least conservative. Yeah, conservative yeah. enough, yes. so We've done it this way for all yeah. these years. Do you think there was anything personal uh, in, in the opposition to you as well, because um, you curiously you weren't elected to the uh, to the assembly, were you? There, were, there was a, a new law that that, that made um, a provision for some uh, some uh, particularly women to be a, a, a sort of drafted into the assembly. You're how did how did that work? You're absolutely right because we were the first round of women who were nominated and elected to the parliament on reserve seats. There was a huge resistance. There was an unacceptance of us. They were bitter about that the women, so many women have been brought into the parliament and why don't they have to go through the same process as we? And a lot of their, um, uh, they, 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 they could not see women playing a serious role in the as a legislator. I had a serious problem in getting myself registered that I can make sense and I have something to contribute here, including I saw a lot of prejudice in the speaker himself. He, he would just not allow women to sp or give them as much time as he used to give to men. And, and he used to turn off your microphone. You uh, my say. mic, because he knew she's going to pick up. And I was very smart with the rules and regulations. I'd done my homework and I would stand up and I would say, you know, point of order and this rule has been violated or this and this. And he said, oh my God, she's going to create trouble. So, and then secondly, I would bring up uh, cases of violence and on, um, on a, I would do adjournment motions and I would ask the law minister and the speaker to look into a personal case of violence and pass out orders to the law department, to the police department, so the necessary action could be uh, taken place. And they thought, you know, because anything that you say on the floor of the house becomes media news. Uh, apparently, all um, the whole media gallery covers it up, and they found that very, very embarrassing, that every time when I speak up, I'm bringing up a um, case of violence, and the case of violence is a reminder to the government of what the law and order situation was in Punjab. And they were miserably failing in protecting the people. This is, uh, these are the kind of the promises they had made in the elections, and they were unable to provide the protection of the security they had promised. So it was a reminder of where they failed, and they saw me as a troublemaker. A troublemaker, but did they see you as a parvenu as well, where you, as, a, as a, you know, a, a, an Arivist? Uh, the, you hadn't paid your dues. 
to be there like like the male that was also yes it took us a while a little bit at least for me it took me a couple of years before my the leader of the opposition then started taking me seriously and i had other colleagues they realized that the issues i'm raising are important issues and what i'm saying is 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 crucial uh, to to the security of the province or to the problems of the underprivileged people but yes the the sort of um, uh, attitude of the way, the, the way dismissal of us most of the time there's no doubt about that the we we've, we've talked a lot about um about the internal uh, circumstances in politics of uh, of pakistan i want to ask you how frustrated you are about the image that pakistan has abroad um i i imagine everybody's asked you about malala the uh, the girl who who was shot by the uh, taliban um and i think i've heard you say that 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 you you fight you you you're you have mixed feelings about the way she's regarded in the west yes my i i have a problem with how media carries um pakistani figures malala malala is definitely somebody who's been through a lot she she went through a very violent experience my my sympathy my compassion is always with the victims we because i have a history of media management myself i've been a newsroom person i know how we flash news i know how news are pegged i know we have agendas when we project a certain news in a certain way what really happens to human rights stories and not just malala is that when they are projected in a certain way and the west steps into this role of being the savior of the east you see that's when you really really discredit your the victim back in home malala's credibility was shaken the moment west projected itself as that and then she you know all that she went through the poor child uh, was um, you know dismissed and and the whole it became an entanglement of the of pakistan and the us relations you see the oh she's being more loyal to the us she's not talking about drone attacks but that doesn't take away of the incident that has happened to her and then the the us media was more attacking pakistan and then branding pakistan as you know every other man is a taliban and the whole country is full of taliban pakistan has so many voices there are moderate voices there are voices of dissent there are extremist voices there are lit, uh, educated people there are liberal women there are conservative women it's, it's a land of paradox like anybody else so and majority of us we hate tehreek-e taliban pakistan we have suffered we have paid the price of a war on terror nobody else americans yes but after us we have paid with our sweat and with our blood and we have no security left in our home and we are tired of this war we have suffered economically we have suffered in our international relations we have suffered you know we've lost the citizens of pakistan and we 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 are done with talibans we we don't want this to continue and when majority of us who hate talibans and the extremists more than the west does and when the whole country is branded as an extremist country is very sad it hurts us It's a very um it, it, of course it's a very political book but it's a very touching book as well because as well as the uh the the cases of of victims that you you were uh, that you describe and by the way one of the things I like is that you don't only present the ones where there's a happy ending sometimes you know the victim dies and and you're left with a feeling of frustration and the sense that you haven't achieved what you would have liked to achieve for that particular victim but th- there's also uh, your personal story which um 
for me actually was the most engaging uh, part of the book as well. Uh, you had a, a, a marvelously uh, privileged upbringing, um, but of course you also had a series of, uh, of uh, personal uh, tragedies and, and difficulties to get through. One, what I want to bring you to is your your religion. Uh, you say that um, the the, uh, the death of your uncle, because he was murdered, not not for political reasons, but he was just murdered as, in a criminal event. That that turned you to Allah, but then you you lost a baby, and that turned you away from Allah. Why why would s- similar sorts of experiences have such a different effect on you? Well, I think. Um I was going through growth. My spiritual growth has different phases. When I was young, I responded in a different way. The death and the murder of my uncle was one of the biggest reminders for me that we are mortal. And that was my prime. You see, I was a teenage in a carefree life, and I saw the suffering of my aunt and her children. I I saw, uh, you know, I had so many questions. I was always a child who who from very beginning I was I was stuck up with questions of who I am I what is the meaning of my existence what is there that I have to do in this life and 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 I think it is my way of um, finding the answers what happened during the time of my when I lost my baby and Adnan had my husband had an accident it is a series of events where I f- I didn't feel loved by God at that time I I was evolving into a relationship my I, and, I, and then uh, for the coming years, I denied God. I denied the spiritual side of myself. And I had everything, and I, I could not fill up that void. So I think it was one phase of my life where I went through this dark times. And it wasn't just God. I abandoned a lot of things. I just got disconnected with everything that was around me. And uh, maybe I could not contextualize my pain. Um, maybe I could not contextualize my loss, but it was something. And then... It all came back, and, um, and, and my idea of God is different from how dogmatic religions are. It's the idea of loving God and the idea of God not being an abstract notion, but something real, something that his presence can be felt, and you, you feel that you have a, a connection with divinity and you have a significance in this universe. So it's, 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 a, it's a very spiritual dimension, and I think we all go through these phases of ups and downs, and finally we reconcile to a side of myself. Um, I mean, um, I think knowing yourself is knowing God as the same. And I had to know myself, my weakness, my limitations of what I felt and how and how meaningful it is all uh, for me. Do you then find frustration with the Western attitude to Islam as well? Because we, th- this, this is a big issue at the moment. It's, it's as big an issue as there is in the world, isn't it? And um, the Western feelings are confused but um, but ungenerous well it does concern me and my experience at harvard is when i did actually come across and i realized that a lot of my talks were about my personal journey and my spiritual journey and people were so interested and i realized that there i didn't feel absence of god at all uh, in the west we have prejudices and we have political definitions of a lot of things but I see West beyond that. I also see a lot of energy and capacity and a lot of quest for truth. And I think no matter how political we are, everybody has a spiritual dimension. Um, I, I look up to this world as a spiritual phenomena, and I look up at human life as a spiritual existence. So 
I have so much love and compassion when I look at uh, West or even when we both are prejudiced against each other. I have a lot of hope because this humanness and our ability to connect each other on a human level is, is the victory. Is, and I, I, I've seen that with American women. They were so nice to me. I mean, I had some of my best friends um, are happened to be the people I met my um, stay at um, USA. I have friends who are Spanish and French, and we women relate to each other. Um, we respect each other's opinions. I mean, on, on the spiritual level, we have a lot of commonalities and we connect. So it worries me that these, these I see them as tools of, and instruments of hate. And I see these as barriers, but I believe we have all the capacity and all the potential to rise above them. And we can do it. You know, Mary, you've been called the most unmanageable woman in Pakistan. Do you relish the title? Well, at that time, I was horrified and I said, oh, my God, they're going to now, you know, make me look like a villain. But I realized now, let me just clarify, this title came from the bureaucracy of Punjab. Bureau the actual war of my money lending bill was me versus the bureaucracy. They did use every tact, every official, unofficial, hidden, <laughs> you know, uh, tact you know, not to bring my bill back for voting. And because it is, um, this was the bureaucracy, this was the revenue department, the most powerful department in the politics of Punjab, no MP would stand up or, you know, go against the revenue department. Otherwise, they would lose the administrative control of their constituency. And here I was, I didn't care. And I walked out on them and I said, I threatened them that if they don't stop harassing me, I will go to the media, I will. And this was my way of telling them that I will take my bill back for voting in the House and make people stand up for that. So anyway, um, this was a title given to me by um, um, the bureaucracy and the revenue department. And the, my journalist friends and my community loved it. And they said, oh, God, there is some person who can actually give hell to the revenue department. That is remarkable. Humara, thank you very much indeed. The book is Devotion and Defiance. It's published by Norton. Um, and it's £17.99 in hardbacks. That's a bargain. It's, it's very touching, as well as being uh, a, a, a wonderful insight into uh, Pakistani politics and, and human rights there. That was Tim Haig Reads Books. Tim Haig Reads Books is a Green Shoot production. You can find out more at green-shoot.com and Tim can be contacted on tim at green-shoot.com.